When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. This episode of The Vault is from November 17, 2012, when the Institute held a day-long symposium in which playwrights, poets, scientists, philosophers, artists, and activists discussed the phenomenon of solitary confinement. Titled, Should You Ever Happen to Find Yourself in Solitary? Wry Fancies and Stark Realities, the event was the brainchild of Lawrence Weschler, the Institute's director. The first presentation is by Jacques Servan and Mary Notari, members of the Yes Men, a performance activist group. Then we hear from avant-garde artist and mosaicist Samantha Holmes. Next up, Jacques Servan of the Yes Men, who are kind of anti-political activists, and his colleague, Mary Notari. The challenge I placed for them was, is it possible to do political activism in solitary? We're, we're kind of clowns. We're an activist group called the Yes Men. We run a Yes Lab at NYU where we help people come up with funny projects around important issues. And Ren asked us if there was something we could do in solitary that would be uh, meaningful as activism, if there was any conceivable action we could do that would actually change anything about our circumstance or, or about anything. So we tried to think about what we could do in solitary. And we came up with things like pretty much along the lines that we already do, which is come up with silly press releases, silly announcements to make from our solitary cell. And, you know, we came up with a few things like this. And honestly, they're kind of lame. Yeah. And, <laughs> <laughs> and present uh, another problem in and of itself, which is who are we releasing this to besides ourselves? Yeah, we quickly realized that the answer is no. And it was interesting to think through why no. And I think the answer is that meaningful political action actually requires a bit of agency. Or when you're in solitary, who is your audience? The guards, uh, the other inmates that are within uh, shouting distance from you. And like Jacques said, there's no agency. There's no purpose to yeah. be served by getting their attention. The warden who you think might have agency doesn't actually have agency. It's right. just rules and they're trained to deal with whatever comes their way. It's the same thinking that you could actually do something to the wardens is kind of the mistake a lot of activists make thinking you could appeal to CEOs of big companies that are ruled by their shareholders. <laughs> just can't do anything about it. There are rules and, and they do what they're told by the market or they're fired. So if the warden actually did something, you'd be fired, replaced by somebody who did. The only way you could do something in solitary, I think, would be to imagine a future in which you have an audience that has a bit of agency. So once you get out or once you're moved to the general prison population, it would be funner to think about what you could do when you get out to actually do something about it. Yeah. And that'd be a great way of occupying ourselves while we imagine, at least while in solitary. Mm -hmm. So the sort of actions that we do, the sort of activism that we do involve creative media actions, whether that's hijacking a brand, whether that's creating fake press releases or create companies and fake personas. And we do all this with the aim of reaching a broad audience 
with like a flash of information. So we boil down problems, we maybe translate them, could be a way of thinking about it, into sound bites that are easily replicable and communicate the issue in as short a time as possible. Alternately, we assemble those actions into a movie, and this is just a, an opportunity to tell you we're making a movie called The Isthmus are Revolting, which assembles a bunch of actions. But the kind of actions that we're talking about um, that can use uh, to communicate something horrific, we'd start probably by thinking about what actions we could be inspired by. And there's a bunch of actions that have been done to communicate really horrible things, at least just a flash about them so that you start thinking about them and hopefully it guides you into following up and even more, even better, taking action on them. Uh, this is Operation First Casualty, where veterans of the Iraq War against the war staged the Battle of Fallujah in Times Square, impromptu, without telling anyone. So here they're carrying wounded comrades. They also wrestle people to the ground and handcuff them. And the result is shock and a flash of recognition, and then they pass out information, getting people to recognize what they've just seen. And one thing that I'd like to add about these type of actions is the whole purpose is to bring the reality of something that is experienced by the people staging these actions to a broader audience. Mm -hmm. And this is somebody who, uh, this is an Iraqi, Wafa Bilal, who made a website, uh, Dog or Iraqi. And this was around the Guantanamo uh, waterboarding controversy, where suddenly we were allowed to waterboard uh, people, which it, it had been considered a form of torture, and suddenly it was deemed not. So you could choose, as a general internet visitor, uh, which one you would waterboard, the dog or the Iraqi, and you could vote and click. Um, so the intention there, and I won't tell you who won, you know, the, the idea was you would definitely not choose the dog, right? I mean, waterboarding a dog is horrific. So that means you have to choose the person, and that's even more horrific. It puts you in a real double bind. And another example of that is uh, puppy burning in the 60s. The Yippies would go around and post notices announcing puppy burnings at the main fountain on campus at noon. People would show up ready to see a, to stop this horrific thing. They'd even hold up a puppy and some kerosene poured on the puppy. Uh, other people would be around to make sure people didn't interfere take a match and light the puppy on fire, except it was water, so the puppy didn't actually get catch on fire. And then they would say, well, you're, you're horrified about this dog, but we're actually burning people in Vietnam or napalm. So it's a, a shock tactic to get that across. So that might be another way to find inspiration for what you might do around solitary confinement. House Linda Ross, this takes a while to explain. Yeah, and this is one of ours, actually. And by ours, I mean the Yes Lab. So the yes, the yes Lab is an organization that was started by the Yes Men to bring those tactics to other issues and campaigns and other organizations. So through the Yes Lab, a group of activists from the Bronx came to us wanting to do something in response to the NYPD policy of stop and frisk. So what they came up with is a fiction. They created an entire fiction that involved a fake website, fake press releases, corporate-looking video, as well as homespun cell phone video. And all was this, all this was in relation to was creating a fiction around a fake partnership between the NYPD and McDonald's that NYPD and McDonald's were partnering to respond to the community's outrage against the massive racial profiling that goes along with stop and frisk. And so by offering free Happy Meals, 
to victims of stop and frisk who were faced with no summons or charges or arrest. That was a way of garnering up outrage against this very real policy. Yeah. And this was the, the voucher where you would oh, yes. you know, print your name and ethnicity and then the badge number of the stopping and then of the officer each time and you take it to McDonald's. And this actually turned into a news slot on ABC. So it was actually successful in getting the word out, which might under excellent circumstances, translate into action to stop, stop, and frisk. Here's the mother of all shock tactics. National television in Belgium plotted for two years to pull a prank on the Belgian populace. They interrupted a news program, pretended like they had a sudden very important announcement to make, and they announced that the country was being split in two, and that Flanders was seceding from Wallonia. And here's the newscaster standing in front of the new Flemish parliament, replacing the Belgian parliament. And they spent two hours examining this, showing riot footage and all that, showing the king fleeing the palace, having um, talk shows where they would talk about the implications of this. Oh, this is terrible. This has happened. Imagine the example to the rest of the world. So the point was to basically try to wake people up with this situation to the possibilities and to get people not to do it. Hopefully, we could spend some time thinking about these things that people have actually done to raise awareness of these issues, which are horrific, maybe not quite as horrific in most cases, except the napalm one, as uh, solitary confinement, and try to just draw parallels and figure out what we could do. And then maybe that would occupy about one day, because these are actually pretty simple projects, and it's not very hard to come up with ideas around them. And then the second day, we could think about how to spin that into an actual campaign and what kind of action we'd ask people to take, start imagining the campaign website and all that. That might be the second day. The third day, probably have to start folding hexaflexograms. Um, So that's our plan. (laughs) So now we have another artist uh, with another sort of uh, possible intervention. This is Samantha Holmes. A remarkable mosaicist. She'll talk to us a bit about that. When Ren called me a couple of weeks ago to ask what I would do if I were in solitary confinement, uh, the answer was pretty clear. I was actually staying in an old military prison at the time in the countryside of Russia, uh, recently converted into a mosaic studio by the Ismail Akhmedov Foundation. I was working 12, 14, 16 hour days, barely interacting with others. Uh, finishing up my work for a group show to be held in Moscow a few weeks later. Mosaic is, uh, above all, a solitary practice. The technique is slow and intensive. Each tile is cut and placed by hand. This is part of why you don't see much mosaic being done today in a world where everything is expected to happen so quickly. When you're working on a mosaic, time goes by in a very different way, measured in inches, not in hours. At times, you forget to eat, to socialize. In this, perhaps, it might be well-suited to solitary confinement. It's as much a meditation as an art form. The process of laying the tiles is one of careful consideration, not only of placement, but size, particular shape, inclination, how it will catch the light, how close it lays to those beside it. You develop a relationship with each material. Every marble, stone, or glass has its own particular properties, color, durability, reflection of light. You form a relationship with them. You know their inconsistencies. You know their touch. 
The materials and te techniques that we use today are the same as those that we've been using for centuries, making the history of the medium all the more relevant. It's the medium of Greek mythology and Byzantine spirituality. In the 20th century, it's picked up by Italian fascism and Soviet communism. It's uncanny the formal and technical similarities that we can trace across the centuries. Ancient Roman chariots and fascist tanks. The Christian church and the American capitalists. What connects these works is not the content of their message, but the strength of the ideologies that they represent. Mosaic is the medium of empires. This last one is a mosaic I was studying just this week, actually, at Rockefeller Center. Uh, to date, I've found more than 100 mosaics built in New York at the start of the 20th century, just at the time of the city's great capitalist boom. Again, mosaic comes in when ideologies coalesce. So why does this happen? Part of it is the nature of the material itself, glass, stone, and marble that convey, above all, a sense of permanence. Vasari, in his Lives of the Artists, refers to mosaic as painting for eternity a concept that is immediately picked up by the Vatican, who to this day employs a team of mosaicists to recreate its paintings in glass and stone. In this way, mosaic becomes a material metaphor for permanence, for time, both in an earthly sense, attesting to the assumed longevity of the depicted subject, and in a spiritual one, by creating a parallel with the immortal paradise promised by the great religions. Now, this kind of permanence, this kind of faith, isn't what I'm trying to capture in my work. It's actually quite the opposite. In the last century, Western societies, and in particular urban societies like ours, have turned away from belief in something larger than ourselves. The old empires have fallen. Religion no longer seems to provide us with clear answers to our questions about life, death, justice. But we still have those questions. My work uses the technical and conceptual framework of mosaic to address the ambiguities of contemporary society. I want to talk about dissolution rather than permanence. I want to talk about uncertainty and desire and doubt, all within the context of those old belief systems. So back to the piece that I was creating in the Russian prison. This piece, uh, installed three weeks ago in Moscow, is the first in a series of site-specific works called the Absence Project. Positioned within the arch of a worn building structure, two lines of tesserae trace the outline of a central figure that is left unfilled, a void through which one sees the wall behind. Both our instincts and our memories of other similar images, again, that context of mosaic, tell us that there should be a figure there. This space, not nothing, but a delineated absence, is meant to evoke a sensation of emptiness and of loss. We feel an instinctual desire to fill that space without any clear sign as to how we might do so today. Context is everything in this work. The piece is installed in the bricked-up doorway of an old factory in the heart of Moscow. The building complex, recently converted into the Art Play Design Center, site of last year's Moscow Biennale, shows the traces of its physical history. Scraped walls, old bricks, dangling wires that attest to the lives passed within its walls. The sense of permanence invoked by the mosaic lies in direct contrast to this deterioration, underlining the gap between the ideal world promised by the church and by the medium, in which there is justice, reason, immortality, and that in which we find ourselves complicated, painful, ultimately given to decline. 
The building acts as a frame to the mosaic, which in turn frames the wall within the figure, suggesting that in place of the saints, we might learn to hallow this other broken surface, the world as we really know it. This project takes on additional meaning in relation to each context. In Ravenna, Italy, home to the greatest surviving Byzantine mosaics, and incidentally, my home for a good part of each year, the figure's absence might refer to both the loss of individual faith and a sort of collective nostalgia for the city's cultural and historical past. In New York, it might express the last longings of a city in which everything is possible, but nothing is sacred. In prison, I think this project would give me the space to ask questions about the enormous gap between the inadequacy of our current justice system and that promise of biblical judgment that would offer each of us exactly the punishment or rewards appropriate to his life. I think probably there's some solace to be found in believing in that latter, some kind of hope in its very possibility. But there would also be the reality of the life that I was living, my solitude, my doubt, I would hope, my innocence. In that sense, and again, in the very slowness of the process of making, the work would become a tool for private meditation, both in the act of its creation and in its subsequent existence in the cell. The tools for mosaic are relatively simple, a hammer and chisel, a bit of cement, stone, essentially the same tools that chain gangs have been using for centuries. But I don't know that prison guards would really let me have a hammer and chisel in solitary. For me, mosaic doesn't have to be limited to traditional materials. It's a set of conceptual implications. It can be created from found materials, metal, rubber, bits of cement. It can be wood and carbon or paper. What's central to the medium is the patience that it requires, the ritual slowness of the process, and the devotion necessary to lend repeated action a larger purpose. This is a piece called Novena, also produced in Moscow, named for a nine-day prayer of petition to the Virgin Mary. In this work, a single sheet of paper is folded in upon itself and bound with wire in a moment of private meditation. The intended devotion is not written but contained in the motions, the traces of the act itself. The papers are assembled into nine columns, whose length depends on the dedication of which I was capable in a given day, about two and a half meters at its longest. This piece was quite challenging for me personally. I'm not very religious, and this work was an attempt to confront the possibilities of that faith, but the consolation it may offer and the doubts that linger in myself. The whiteness of the paper represents both the purity of the intended prayer, should there be someone, something that listens, and the possibility of their emptiness, if there is not. In mosaic, this emptiness matters as much as the material itself in defining an image. We create lines with the spaces between the tesserae. Perhaps it is this aspect, above all, that might offer us a metaphor for the world today, focusing not on our ideologies, but on the spaces between them. Thanks. Uh, I was thinking, could you imagine doing this with chewing gum and chewing gum wrapper, for example? Yes. <laughs> I mean, the, the nice thing about mosaic is, is it really is a... Uh, a kind of paradigm for thought and, and for examination of a material. So what that material is doesn't matter so much as how you look at it, how you use it, and essentially how you put it together. So anything that can be scaled and multiplied can make a mosaic. Now that I asked you the question, do you think this would be a way of, of doing time, as has been said? I think it would keep me busy 
for quite some time. I think the realities, obviously, of solitary are more are more complicated. But what it does give you is a way to have a dialogue and have a relationship with a material that I think can give you back some of what's missing in the relationship you would have with another person. Thank you so much. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. This episode was produced by Micah Hazel. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.